Well, howdy there, partner. <laughs> I've been getting a lot of feedback on the podcast. People saying I don't do a fantastic job with introducing our guests. So from here on out, I'm going to be doing that in the beginning. So y'all don't have to read the description to figure out who I'm talking to, because let's be honest, who reads anymore? Although, you know, I did just read a book about the sun and you know, it was very enlightening. So anyways, uh, welcome to episode six. This is my chat with Mr. Heavy Metal Rick Savage, as he's known in the entertainment industry. He's a retired professional wrestler, uh, used to be a TV host for a show called American Diggers on the Spike Network, but most importantly has been giving ghost tours and ghost walks in Gettysburg for over 20 years now, which is just fantastic. So I was very excited. You can tell I'm a little nervous in the beginning, but <laughs> let's get spooky. How you doing today, Rick? I am kicking like Kentucky Fried Chicken, just as finger licking all day long singing my <laughs> song, baby. That's awesome. All right. So for those of you who uh, haven't figured it out yet, we have a very special guest with us today. First celebrity guest on the podcast, Mr. Rick Savage, aka Heavy Metal Rick, who is an absolute beast. I saw one of your old YouTube videos where you're benching 405 pounds. That's insane. Yeah, that was when I was in my mid 40s and I was old and, you know, I couldn't oh lift as God. much. So that's awesome. So, anyways, this is going to be the July 4th special. And I started thinking about this around episode two. The first thing that kind of popped up to mind was the Battle of Gettysburg because that happened, you know, kind of around the July 4th time period. And come to find Mr. Rick Savage does ghost tours in Gettysburg. But before he. Was it before or was it during that you were a wrestler? I wrestled uh, from like 1990 to 97, and then I started Ghost Walks when I got out of wrestling in 97. So that's, or not Ghost Walks, I did a, a theater presentation uh, for the same Ghost Walk company, but they did it inside. We didn't walk the sidewalks back then. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So uh, being an ex-professional wrestler, what kind of got you into the whole realm of professional wrestling? Uh, growing up in the Great Smoky Mountains, you know, wrestling and NASCAR were prevalent, even though, you know, I come from liberal academics. My father was an English professor, my mother a librarian. So mm -hmm. they weren't real big into sports, to say the least. Yeah. Um, but I still, you know, you go spend the night with your friends and, you know, get up on Saturday mornings and you're watching wrestling. And I got, you know, it was fun. That was back when, you know, the business hadn't been given away and people still wondered, mm -hmm. is it real? Is it fake? And right. Right. <laughs> you know, it was easy to pick the good guys, your heroes and the villains. And I grew up watching, you know, Dusty Rhodes and the Four Horsemen and Magnum TA and the Rock and Roll Express and the Barbarian and all those guys. And just looking at them like, wow, you know, these guys are incredible. But truthfully, I wanted to be a rock star. Oh, really? I didn't want to be a wrestler. I wanted to be Vince Neil. You know, yeah. I wanted to be Jamie Lane from Warren. I wanted to be a rock star. The problem is when I looked in the mirror, <laughs> I did not see a rock star looking back at me because right. I wasn't consumptively thin with long hair. Mm -hmm. You know, it just wasn't, I didn't have the rock star look. I might be able to pull it off now in the new world we live in, but back then, <laughs> you know, you, you, you had to look kind of like a chick, but not exactly yeah. in the eighties. I just didn't have the look. So mm -hmm. wrestling, when I looked in the mirror, I saw somebody that looked 
remarkably like a professional wrestler. And I thought, you know, I wanted to entertain people and mm-hmm. I enjoy being in front of an audience. So wrestling was the direction I took. Awesome. Rick Savage is obviously your stage name. So how did that and, you know, the heavy, heavy metal Rick Savage, how did that whole name kind of come to fruition for you? You know, all wrestlers go through a period where they're trying to create a character. You know, Steve Austin went yeah. through several variations of characters until he became Stone Cold, you know, right, and right. Uh, Magnum T.A. became Magnum T.A. because Andre the Giant one night said, hey, you look like that Tom Selleck guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when Magnum P.I. was hot. Yeah. So everybody, you know, mine, I was being trained by Ivan Koloff. And uh, it was basically, I, I didn't know. I, I thought, you know, I was thinking of this and that and the other. And Ivan said, well, you know, who are some of the people that, that you watch? And, you know, I'm like Ric Flair, Randy Savage. He said, yeah. well, you can be Randy Flair. Or you can be Rick Savage. And I thought, oh, Rick Savage, I like that. So and then I remember that Bill Apter from Pro Wrestling Illustrated had said, you know, that's a great name. So I stuck with it. Yeah, it is an awesome name. <laughs> um, so then moving on from wrestling, you uh, kind of got recruited, I believe, by, if I'm right, the same producer who brought Duck Dynasty. So what was, was it just kind of an easy transition being, you know, in the entertainment industry already moving from wrestling to, you know, hosting a reality TV show on Spike? Well, it's odd because I had kind of, I'd retired from wrestling in 97, as Mm -hmm. I said, and I kind of got out of anything entertainment related at that point. I'd kind of, you know, I had met my wife, she had kids and you know, the lifestyle of wrestling and being on the road and yeah. all of that, I thought, you know, that's not a great environment. And the business had changed. You know, that was mm-hmm. one extreme, which I'd done, you know. But, you know, it, it's it's brutal. Yeah. So I got, I got out of entertainment, got out of wrestling, got legitimate for a little while. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, one day I was sitting there. And an email popped up in my personal inbox uh-huh. that said, do you want to host a TV show? So I'm thinking mm-hmm. it's probably coming from the same people that were, you know, telling me that I had a relative in Nigeria that had recently passed. Right. That was worth $800 <laughs> billion. Dollars. Yep, yep, the and prince. if I would give them 10 grand, they would wire me the $8 billion. <laughs> you know? So yep. I figured it's got to be the same deal. Mm-hmm. Then I, you know, I, I went to the website for the for the production company, and I'm seeing, well, damn, you know, they've got some shows that are on now. And they had a whole slate, and so I spoke to Scott Gurney, who is it was the head of Gurney Productions, and you're right, he created our show. He created uh, Auction Hunters, which was also on Spike, and mm-hmm. then in between our first and second season is when they created Duck Dynasty. Gotcha. And obviously that was that sucked all the air out of the room, the production yeah, company, yeah. because it was so big and so successful that every other show on the slate, you know, if you I was the only, I was a, a the baby of my family, but I got to feel the stepchild feel then because man, right, you get right. booted down the food chain real quick when yeah. you got a show that big. <laughs> so that but that was kind of that's it literally started with hmm. an email. Nice. So for those of you who don't know, the name of the show was Savage Family Diggers. In the beginning, 
Did they ask you to come on and make like a treasure hunting kind of show or was that something you were more interested in that you brought to them? Well, it was, what happened was, you know, um, if you, I mean, if you want to know the true story, Scott Gurney had a show called Auction Hunters and Auction Hunters was a storage locker show. And, you know, you had to have cool stuff to find in Auction Hunters every week, like you did in Storage Wars and all the others. So, Mm-hmm. You know, Scott Gurney had had subscriptions to all sorts of magazines. One of them included American Digger magazine because they're all nice. kind of artifact related. Yep, yep. And uh, you know, Scott one day happened to I had a column called The Savage Truth mm-hmm. and he looked at he he saw the column and luckily I'd put a picture of me like when I was wrestling so it wasn't like what I'd look like then. It was right. really horrible. <laughs> so he looks at this and thinks, damn, that's a show. So he looked at me and thought there was a show, but I don't think he, he really knew what until we, we spoke. And then it was kind of like the metal detected. And he was like, well, wow, you guys are doing that. And I said, yeah, that's, you know, that's one of the things we do. And he said, well, shoot, that's a show right there. And that's how it started. Wow. Nice. What was the most interesting object that you kind of found on that show oh man we found a lot of good stuff my favorite was always we were uh in a freshwater lake a few miles below jamestown virginia on private property and uh mm-hmm. we found a revolutionary war era uh karen cannon which wow. came from karen scotland you know it was stamped 1774 if i recall huh. correctly That's crazy. So that kind of leads us into our next thing. Obviously, you do ghost walks, uh, ghost tours in Gettysburg. So how did you kind of get interested in, you know, the paranormal kind of stuff? And what led you specifically to Gettysburg? Well, I'm a Civil War buff, and I've been a Civil War buff since I was nine years old. Mm -hmm. Um, And my parents, being academics, encouraged that. So there, there came a point when I was probably 12 that I said, instead of taking me down to the beach, why don't we go to Gettysburg? Why don't we go to Vicksburg? Why don't we go to Chattanooga? Why don't we go to Richmond? Why don't we go to Fredericksburg? So my summer vacations began becoming Civil War battlefield tours. And so I would go to all these places with my parents and I would go to the battlefields and I would, I would take the tours and we would go and watch whatever presentations they had. And I would buy books in the bookshops and just, and keep reading and reading and reading. And I got more and more fascinated with it. So when I graduated college in 1996, uh, one of my good friends from childhood as a kind of a celebration said, Hey, let's go to Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. So we went to Gettysburg. We had dinner at a restaurant called the Farnsworth House, which had been a house that had been part of the battle. There's still bullet holes in the wall and all that. Really? Okay. So we had dinner there, and that's where I met my wife, uh, Rita. Oh, nice. Actually, she waited at my table that night. Nice. And, you know, that kind of, I decided I needed to move to Gettysburg, so I ended yep, up moving yep. up there. <laughs> and I got out of wrestling. Huh. And then the question is, you know, you got to find some way to feed yourself. So mm-hmm. I thought, you know, 
I didn't necessarily want a real job because real jobs involve a lot of work and stress yeah. and all that kind of stuff that I didn't want any part of that. So right, right. I'm like, how do, and my, my, the guy that a friend of mine, Michael Phipps, he was a battlefield guide. Mm-hmm. And Mike said, dude, you ought to do ghost stories. Mm-hmm. And so that's how it got started. I ended up, you know, I did, I did them at the Farnsworth house to begin with. And then I went down, down the street to the conflict theater it was for uh, a lady and gentleman, Dick and Pauline Peterson, and they had a live theater presentation. And I went out on the sidewalk every day and promoted my show for hmm. hours and yeah. drummed up crowds. And, and it was inside, so rain or shine. And I would I dressed like the Undertaker wrestler undertaker oh yeah because i was playing off the wrestling thing so i had this is a true story as well my good friend uh, matt hardy who's a wrestler still to this day and very well known back Uh then matt hadn't made it big yet and one of the things matt did to make money on the side was make outfits for other wrestlers like he would sew he would sew you you know pants and and all that so matt literally made me the undertaker outfit that i used And I used it that whole year and had a ball doing it because, you know, I just love entertaining crowds. I don't really care what I'm doing. As Mm -hmm. long as I'm in front of a crowd and and they're enjoying it, then I can do it all day and all night. Yeah, that's an awesome story. So have you ever had any paranormal experiences of your own, Rick? You know, when when, uh, I first moved to Gettysburg and first started doing the show, my wife was like, look, you don't believe in this stuff. And... Mm. You're not going to be believable to the people if you don't, she said, you need, and it was, you know, in wintertime, Gettysburg, you know, there's nobody there except the locals. I mean, so it's pretty much, they roll up the sidewalks. Mm -hmm. So we would go out on the battlefield, you know, because the battlefield, you had to be out by 10, but Mm -hmm. you know, in the winter, you know, five o'clock, it's dark. So we'd go out, you know, six or seven o'clock and go to the devil's den or go to a little round top and get out of the car and just walk around and see what we would experience. And I remember the first time I had a paranormal feeling was at the Devil's Den in Gettysburg. I'd read a story about the bridge. It's actually like a, a modern little footbridge mm-hmm. that that goes uh, to the to the uh, bathroom mm-hmm. out there. And there's story. There was ghost stories about there's a spirit that like physically attacked people there. Oh. Which you know I'm like yeah whatever. Well. My wife hasn't read any of these books, you know, Mm -hmm. she's just, we're just out here and I haven't been talking about it. So we get out of the car and we're walking around and, and I start walking towards this bridge and she takes a few steps with me and she stops and she said, I don't want to go any further. I said, what do you mean? She said, look, I'll walk with you over here. I'll walk with you over here. She pointed at the bridge. She said, I will not go anywhere near that. (laughs) So all the hair on the back of my neck stood up because I'm thinking, you know, wait a minute. So (laughs) we walked through the devil's den Mm -hmm. and I remember we're walking through an area that I'd seen in photographs and, you know, you're trying to picture stuff in your head. And I remember it was like I stepped into a refrigerator. Uh, I don't know how else to explain it. I stepped into an extremely cold spot. And then as I, finished the step i walked it literally walked through it wow it wasn't like it followed me it was like it was there and i it's like i you know if you're thinking you know if i'm doing the patrick swayze from ghost you know that you know i got patrick swayze (laughs) maybe i walked through a spirit yeah so i take a few more steps 
And, you know, I stop and my wife joins me. I said, just curious, have you felt anything? She said, not until we walked through that spot right there. Wow. And again, hair raises up on the back of my neck. I turned around, we walked back, and there was no cold spot. Wow. Jeez. So that was my first experience, and that's at Gettysburg. Yep. My second experience was in at, at the Malvern Hill battlefield in Richmond. Mm-hmm. Again, my wife and I went there. It was the first time I'd ever been there. We went there at night. And if you've ever been to Malvern Hill, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's, you know, Gettysburg is uh, highly traveled. This really isn't. It's just out there, you know, and it's just like a little, it's a little pavilion top and a few cannons and that's it. Mm -hmm. But it's beautiful at night, you know? So we went out there and I remember getting, we got there, we got, open the door, get out of the car. And my wife went nuts on me. She was like, (laughs) we got to get out of here, get in the car. Oh my God, we got to go. You know, yeah. I'm freaking out. I'm thinking, oh God, you know, maybe maybe Al Qaeda's in the woods or something. You know, we're freaking the hell out. Yep. So I jump in the car, you know, we're like you know, hundred miles an hour, right, right. you know, back towards the hotel. And I'm looking at her and I'm like, What was it? What was it? And she was like, It felt like there was a thousand eyes staring at me. Jeez. I hit the brakes. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Really? That you just gave me two strokes and a heart attack right. because you felt like there was, oh, come on. I was, I was like, come on. So we go back to the hotel yes. and I had this book. It was a book of civil war ghost stories. Uh-huh. And in this book is a, is a chapter called Malvern Hill. Mm-hmm. As I read the last statement was a park employee, a park ranger that said, I hate going out there at night because it always feels like there's a thousand eyes watching me or a bunch of people staring wow. at me. Oh my gosh. Again. That's crazy. So that was when I realized that when my wife says something's funky, something's funky. Because, mm-hmm. you know, she was at that point three for three. And then we we were at Malvern Hill another time, smelled cigar smoke, right? Yeah. I mean, thick, like there was somebody blowing it in my face. <laughs> Yet we were standing in the middle of an open field in wow. the middle of, and you know, cow pastures. There's nothing there. Yeah, yeah. And then another time we were there and we smelled campfire smoke real strong and then it goes away. So I would say every one of those is a paranormal experience. Can I prove it? No, you couldn't touch it. You couldn't take a picture of it, Mm -hmm. but you know, you felt it. Mm -hmm. Along with those experiences, have you ever seen like a full body apparition or anything like that? Like ghosts and windows or I know a lot of people say they see like sometimes, um, like apparitions of soldiers running running across the road or running in the fields or anything like that? No, no. The reason, even if I had, I wouldn't have bought that one because yep. I had a friend that was, I had a buddies that were relic diggers back in the, you know, the 60s and 70s when you could still sneak on the park and dig and all they would do is run you off. Yep, yep. And they used to go out at night and go digging and then tour, somehow somebody came into one of the park areas and, and, you know, they're hiding mm-hmm. and, and it was somebody, you know, looking for ghosts. So then the, the diggers started messing with them, like <laughs> that kind of deal. So it became a thing. People kept like coming every night, more and more people would show up to see these ghosts. So these diggers would go out there and hide in the woods mm-hmm. and make noises and stuff to scare them. So I figured I'm not necessarily, there's too many reenactors that, that get a good buzz going in town and might want to go out and just stroll across the road and then hide, you know? So that one I never had, but we were at, 
we were at a play I, when I was doing my ghost walk in Gettysburg, my more recently, I guess it was about six years ago. I had a special guest, a, a, a dear friend of mine, Ted Poley. He mm-hmm. is the uh, lead vocalist for the the metal band Danger Danger oh, really? and uh, Tokyo Motor Fest. So nice. Ted, you know, and Ted's into the paranormal and he showed up mm-hmm. and we, we were on the tour and it's the first house we stop at on the tour. And it's been like two years since I've done the tour and I'm sitting here not remembering, you know, the family name of the house. But Ted took a picture of this little Garrett window. And if you Google Ted Poley, P-O-L-E-Y, Ted Poley, Gettysburg, Ghost, there's a link. It pulls up to with that picture of something staring out the window at us and a funky light on on the window. Oh, dang. Yeah. And you couldn't see the light unless you except in the picture and you know oh. we you know it's not a house somebody lives in so we actually had people we actually you know went up there it's a historical society and they let us go up and look and there wasn't even anything on the window that would have made that kind of a glare and it was wow. in the dark you know this picture's being taken at like you know nine 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 thirty at night mm-hmm. so it's not you know it's not like a sun or a moon glare or anything so you know that was the closest I ever came to seeing something. And I, and I show that picture whenever I do that ghost walk in Gettysburg, I always make that picture a part of it because, you know, telling a ghost story is one thing, yep. showing them where something happened, where their standing's a lot different. Yeah. I, I actually just looked up that picture while you were talking about it and looking at it right now. That is definitely, definitely creepy. <laughs> yeah. And I was there when it was taken and I yep. know the guy that took it, Ted, you know, Jeez. Ted's like me. We're middle-aged guys. We're not like tech experts. Right. You know, Ted was just, <laughs> you know, he was just snapping pictures of whatever. Mm. And then as I'm doing the tour, you know, as, as he, I, all he's like, dude, <laughs> you know. And everybody's like, what the hell, you know? And it, he showed me the picture and everybody was just like, oh, my God. Yeah. You know? Goodness. Yeah, that's a crazy picture. <laughs> wow. Um. So on these tours, what is what would you say is the most scary ghost story that you tell people when you're giving the tour? I've got some, it depends because if there's, if there's a lot of younger kids, you know, I don't want to be the guy that gives them nightmares. I don't want to be that dude, (laughs) but you know, the story, you know, a lot of people, there's a lot of horror at Gettysburg during the battle Mm -hmm. with or without ghosts, you know, there were, Gettysburg, the whole area of uh, Gettysburg were, had massive hog farms, and when the when the you know soldiers were knocking down the fences to make fires and to make breastworks and everything else, mm-hmm. the hogs, all these huge feral hogs, just got released all over the place, <laughs> and pigs eat anything. Yep, yep. They eat wounded soldiers. They ate Jeez. some soldiers while they were wounded guys while they were still alive. Oh my god! You know, there's stories about that in the National Archives. Mm-hmm. So. One of the stories I tell is about, uh, it was on the, uh, not the devil's den, but the wheat field is the story at at the top of the wheat field on the night of July 2nd, when uh, a bunch of wounded union soldiers were eaten alive by pigs. And, you know, one of the ones that survived talks about, they were trying to beat them off with whatever they could. Yeah. Um, when I was doing research on Gettysburg earlier, I, you kind of forget, you know, talking about ghosts and spooky stuff, but like behind every ghost story, there is something usually tragic that happens, you know, whether that be like uh, a murder, a suicide, something like that. But just to put it in perspective for the listeners, um, 
I found there were 51,000 casualties within three days, and Gettysburg actually became the first federal disaster area in American history, yes. which is not not good. <laughs> well, Gettysburg, I mean, you had 51,000 killed, wounded, and missing. Every barn, every house, every stable, everything became a, a you know, a hospital yeah. because they had so many wounded soldiers, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, 51,000 casualties is what they estimate, you know, mm-hmm. civil war. There could, it could have been more, you know, yeah, exactly. and there was probably a lot that died after the battle, you know, civil war medicine, you know, was, was very, if you got shot solid in the arm or the leg yeah. and it hit the bone, they were cutting your arm or your leg off. They didn't have any other way to do it. Because the Civil War bullets were made, you know, these big, huge lead mini balls. Mm-hmm. When it lead, when it it expands, when it hits something, so when it would hit flesh, these bullets would expand. So when they hit bone, they would splinter the bone, wow. and that, you know, they had what they called a bone probe, which was basically a metal, a little pair of piece of metal that they would root around Yikes. in a wound to see if they found bone splinters. And if they found bone splinters, then they cut your arm or your leg off. Jeez. No questions asked. Wow. And this could be while you're lying on a table still that just got rinsed off with a bucket of bloody water from the other 500 guys that had been on there before you. Mm-hmm. You know, th- they were throwing arms and legs out the windows of these hospitals so imagine if you're on the the first floor and they're operating on the second floor after a while the arms and legs piled up over the windows so the guys in the first floor even in in july in the middle of the day had to use candles to operate because it cut off the sun that's another true story that was in the national archives goodness yeah that's that's crazy so do you think you know with places like this that like energy from the events that happened can get kind of trapped in trapped in the location, especially since Gettysburg was such a horrific event? Well, you know, if if there was ever an event that could create a ghost, you've got to believe any Civil War battle, but Gettysburg, you know, you've got a bunch of majority um, 17, 18, 19-year-old kids for the most part, and you know, they're all of them, they're not the ones going to die. Of course, it's Mm -hmm. always going to be somebody else. So they're not expecting it. So it's just like one minute, you know, you're, you're marching down the hill and the next minute, you know, the bullet goes through your forehead and it's all done. So Mm -hmm. that can you imagine, and that happens all day, every day. And imagine some of the horrific ways some of these guys died, you know, a solid shot from a cannonball is just like a big, huge shot put. And when you fire that solid shot, they would fire it to where it would bounce off the ground, almost like skipping a rock. Mm -hmm. And it would tear through a line of infantry and rip off people's legs and disembowel people and could kill a dozen or more people with one cannonball. Jeez. And that, and then you had the canister, which was, you know, you take a cannon and you put in a giant, it's like making it into a giant 12 gauge shotgun, Mm -hmm. except, you know, the shotgun pellets are about the size of golf balls. And imagine, you know, these cannons spraying this into these guys marching forward, shoulder to shoulder, 
you know, they're using Napoleonic tactics from, from 1809 mm -hmm. against modern weapons in 1863. So the tactics did not update with the weapons. That's why the casualties in the Civil War were so horrific. And that's why the last years of the Civil War, 64 and 5, all were fought from trenches. Hmm. And, and if you look at World War One. And the last two years of the American Civil War and World War One, I, I mean, it's the same thing. The, the soldiers ended up living in ditches because they finally figured out, hey, you know, maybe we wouldn't have 3,000 guys killed in 10 minutes if yeah. we didn't march them shoulder to shoulder against people that can kill them from almost a mile away. Hmm. So then Gettysburg is actually where some of the some of like the old the older war tactics switched into more of like a modern way of fighting then. I would say it was it was an evolving process, but it was very... See, all the Civil War generals went to the same college. They all went to West Point. They all knew each other. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they were all in the same club. They were all buddies. So yep. they all learned to fight. And, and at that time, those guys had been taught Napoleonic tactics. That was... Mm. At that point right. in history, Napoleon was the man. He yep. was the military genius. So everybody followed him. The problem was in the 1840s, they came up with the with the rifled musket. Mm -hmm. And when the rifled musket came in, that should have completely changed tactics, but it didn't. You know, they're still sticking bayonet, they're still doing bayonet charges. Yeah. You know, in the Civil War, which, you know, in the Revolutionary War, bayonet charge, you had about a 50 yards you had to worry about the other guy being able to shoot you. Mm -hmm. In the Civil War, with a rifled musket, they could shoot you from two or 300 yards, wow. you know? And these guys are marching shoulder to shoulder yeah. across the field, open fields, huh. you know, against cannons and infantry. It was, it was like a slaughterhouse. You know, if they'd have matched the tactics earlier, you know, if the Civil War had started with new tactics, casualties might not have been as bad as they were. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So one of the battles I found, I believe it was on the third day, was Seminary Ridge. And I think that one ties in really well with what you're talking about, with people kind of walking. Well, that was, third day was Pickett's Charge. The Confederates marched from Seminary Ridge and attacked the Union troops on Cemetery Hill mm, and yep. along the line. And uh, fifteen thousand Confederates. Um, you had Peckett, Pe Peckett, Pickett, Pettigrew, and Trimble. So basically, it got called Pickett's Charge because Pickett was a Virginian and he was part of the Virginia Club. Even though there were more troops that weren't, they were from AP Hill's brigade, you know, mm -hmm. um, Pettigrew and all those that Pettigrew was a North Carolina guy. So, you know, they're not going to get top billing over Virginia. So Pickett, yeah. you know, even though Pickett himself didn't really go out in front of his troops at Pickett's charge, he stayed to the rear and was actually a lot of people were mad at him over it. But uh, hmm. so Pickett's charge, you had a, a mile that these guys, 15,000 men, shoulder to shoulder, mm -hmm. marched across an open plain against massed cannon and, and musket fire. Wow. And, you know, it was, they got torn to pieces by the cannons um, almost as soon as they came out of the woods. Mm -hmm. And then when they hit the Emmitsburg Road, they had a fence they had to take down, and the Union troops opened up with muskets there and just shredded them. Jeez. So a very few of them got to 
what they call the high water mark of the Confederacy there. And then basically the ones they, they turned around and walked back. They just was like, screw it. We yeah. can't do this. It's over. Huh. So, wow. And the union troops let them go. They didn't, they didn't, you know, they didn't kill them as they were retreating. They just, you know, the guys just turned around and said that, that's yeah. it. Huh. Jeez. What would you say is the worst battle of the whole Gettysburg um, thing? I found one that said, Triangle Field was one of the bloodiest locations. The Triangular Field was bad. I mean, there were more people killed on the first day where the Iron Brigade, which was a famous Union regiment, ran into the 26th North Carolina, which was actually recruited from up in the Great Smokies, Asheville, uh, up very close to where I live. Mm -hmm. um, there were more people killed and wounded in that fighting than there was on Omaha Beach on D-Day. Wow. Just in that little part of the battle. Jeez. And then I, I mean, know. the 26th North Carolina showed up at Gettysburg with something between 800 and a thousand men. And they fought on the first day and they fought in Pickett's charge. And I don't think there was 50 of them left at the end of it that were able to come to, you know, they were able to still function. Jeez. They had, it was the highest regimental loss of any regiment in the civil war. Wow. Was the 26th North Carolina at Gettysburg. My God, yeah, that's that's crazy. <laughs> um, could you could you run us through the story about Devil's Den as well, quick? Devil's Den, the fighting actually in Devil's Den itself has been. There wasn't as much fighting there because the Confederates, you know, the Union guy, the Union troops, kind of fell back. They were on the heights on on um, Little Round Top, mm -hmm. and the Confederates had come up through the triangular field. What happened was Longstreet. Lee Lee was a Virginia guy, so was Longstreet. Mm. And when they came up to invade Pennsylvania, they were used to operating in territory where everybody's kind of all the civilians are kind of on your side, you know. Yep, yep. So and they had guys that knew all the back trails and all that. When they came up into Pennsylvania, Jeb Stewart, Lee's cavalry commander, had gotten he had gone off on a raid a ride around the union army there was it was done because he had he had gotten spanked um in a cavalry battle at brandy station before the gettysburg campaign embarrassed him so he wanted to you know he wanted to get stewart was kind of a prima donna so he wanted to get his mojo back so he does this right he, he wants to repeat his successful 1862 ride around the union army mm -hmm. the problem is the union army under hooker at that time moved a lot quicker than they expected. You know, Hooker was a really crappy battlefield commander, but he wasn't bad at maneuvering his troops. So mm -hmm. the Confederates, you know, start their invasion of Pennsylvania kind of blind because Stewart's cavalry ended up with the Union Army getting in between him and Lee. So there was no communication. So Lee, he still had cavalry, but it was under uh, Albert Jenkins, a West Virginia guy, and of course he wasn't in the club, so Lee didn't trust him as well. Stewart was his man, and Lee kind of was blind going into PA. So he's 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 getting bad intelligence. Hmm. You know, he's not sure of anything. So you know, when he gets to Gettysburg, if you stand where Lee, you know, you always hear about how the Union guys got the. If you watch the movie Gettysburg, you know mm -hmm. the high ground. <laughs> Well, if you're Lee on Seminary Ridge, you're you're on the high ground too. Technically, there was like the high ground on both sides with a valley in the middle. Mm -hmm. But because Lee was the invader, the aggressor, and Lee, you know, Lee 
was probably one of the best battlefield commanders in American history. And one thing about Lee was he was not scared to order his men to die if there was a military advantage that he could gain from it. Hmm. So Lee was going to attack because he couldn't he couldn't just sit there because, you know, he had a supply chain going all the way back to Virginia. He couldn't just sit up there. He had to attack. He had to make something happen. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Lee attacks on the first day and the first day of the Battle of Gettysburg, if that had been it, it was a huge Confederate victory. The Union troops broke and, and reformed on Cemetery Hill. And at that point, you know, the next day, July 2nd, Lee sent Longstreet. He figured, I'll go around the Union right. And there's been a lot of controversy and second guessing on that. But the problem was Lee didn't know where the Union right ended. He thought the Union right ended about where the uh, Pennsylvania monument is on the battlefield, but it extended all the way down past uh, Little Round Top. He didn't know. So when Longstreet's trying to make this, this sneaky Stonewall Jackson kind of march unobserved, he keeps getting spotted as he realizes the line's a lot bigger. So, hmm. you know, it's four o'clock in the afternoon before he ever makes an attack. And you'd had a Union general named Sickles that had disobeyed a direct order from me, the new commander, and moved his corps forward into what's the peach orchard. Mm -hmm. So as Longstreet makes his attack, which was to attack up the Emmitsburg Road and roll up the Union right flank. That was it. It was a simple thing. Mm -hmm. You had Sickles stuck himself right in the way. So... Here comes Longstreet's guys. They run into Sickles where he wasn't expected. And the whole battle, the peach orchard, the wheat field, the devil's den, all of that almost was by accident. You know, it was because Longstreet was trying to be unobserved and Sickles disobeyed me. So Sickles probably would have been, if Gettysburg would have gone the other way, Sickles would have been the great villain. You know, he would have been the guy that cost the Union. But because the Union won, Sickles was a politician. He wasn't a real soldier. Mm -hmm. Sickles used it in his political career like I was the hero of Gettysburg, you know. And after right. the war, he, used, he lost his leg at Gettysburg to an artillery round, but he kept the bone. And he would do political stump speeches, holding up that leg, going, <laughs> look what I gave for my country. You <laughs> nice. know? Huh. Then he went over to Europe and did a European tour and got in trouble because he was he was banging all these uh, duchesses <laughs> and all these. So he, he was like an international incident with legs, oh one gosh. leg. That's funny. So then Gettysburg Cemetery, is that... Do you have any like kind of ghost stories or anything surrounding that area? No, not for the cemetery itself. You know, the National Cemetery, no, or even Evergreen Cemetery, you know, the cemetery that was always there. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of stories there. Most of the stories in Gettysburg, a lot of them are attached to houses that were there during the battle. You know, the Jenny Wade house, the Farnsworth house. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have some... In, there's there's some out on the first day's field near the uh, the peace monument the peace light monument, um, where you had a massive amount of Confederates that were just mowed down because their commander was a drunk idiot, and they were buried in mass graves there. Wow. And then after the war, you know there was all sorts of stories about you know strange mists rising up and. All of this, which could have been gases from the decomposing bodies. And actually, oh, yeah. uh, one guy in Gettysburg, after the war, planted his grape arbors out there over the Confederate 
dead, true story, <laughs> and was winning local awards for how good his wine was until people oh figured out where it was coming from. <laughs> Jeez. The guy's name was Forney. That's a true story, too. Wow. But the Confederate dead were removed in, I think it was 1870, and re reinterred in Hollywood Cemetery in Richmond, Virginia. Huh. But the stories never went away. You know, they call that area Iverson's Pits. Oh, and the foliage in Iverson's pits, if you flew over in a plane, mm -hmm. you could see that where those pits were, that it's a lot more lush and, you know, the grass looks a lot better there. So you wow. can still see Iverson's pits from the air. Huh. Wow. Um, in your professional guiding opinion, Rick, where would you think would be the most haunted area of Gettysburg, whether that be like a battlefield or like a house, hotel, something like that? You know, it's hard to say because every every house in Gettysburg that was there during the battle has, you know, the Cash Town Inn, all of them, they have, you know, 50 ghost stories. Mm -hmm. You know, the Cash Town Inn was just, you know, it was there during the battle. You know, Lee went in there, you know, didn't stay there, but, you know, the Confederate Army marched right by it. And, there's a photograph of the Cash Town Inn, a modern photograph showing a ghost in the picture of a Confederate soldier. Hmm. So that would be, you know, any of them. Like I said, it, you, they all have 50 stories apiece. You know, the Dobbin House has a ton of stories. You know, the Dobbin House, the Dobbin family, you know, they were, they were one of the first people that moved and settled in Gettysburg, you know, and they built this beautiful home and, you know... It, Mr. Dobbins' first wife dies. He marries this lady. You know, he had he had eight he had eight or nine kids, and he marries a lady that's got eight or nine kids. So they wow. had like eighteen kids. Seriously, living <laughs> in one in the what's now the Dobbin House restaurant. Yeah. So there's a ton of stories there about you know people will be having dinner and ladies will feel something stroking their hair, huh. and there's nothing there, and the little kids like to play with the long hair, that kind of thing. So. Or you see him peeking out the windows after, you know, at four o'clock in the morning when there's nobody in yeah. there. Huh. Yeah, it sounds like that town has a massive amount of history in there, especially with, you know, the battle and everything that's gone on there. Well, I mean, the battle was the greatest thing that ever happened for the local people of Gettysburg because had there not been a battle there, you know, who would ever go there yeah. and why? You yeah. know, <laughs> it would have probably, it probably would have, you know, just be another little podunk place that you might stop at a convenience store cruising through to York. Right. Right. Again, when I was watching some of your older videos, uh, there was one a guy took on a tour you were giving, and there's one part that really stood out to me where you're standing in front of a house, and you mention how you think history can imprint itself on a place, and I found that yes. super interesting, so I was just wondering if you could go a little more, you know, tell that story and then go a little in-depth on what you mean by um, imprinting itself. Well, that was in front of the Dobbin house. And, and actually, it kind of ties into the end of my tour. Mm -hmm. There's an odd formation in the, in the, the Dobbin house was built in before the American Revolution. Uh -huh. And Abraham Lincoln, just for reference, was born in 1809, long after the American Revolution. Right. But there's a structure, the way the stones were put in, if you stand at the Dobbin house, at night, you can look, and it looks exactly like the outline of Lincoln's face wow. in shadow. I mean, I, it, there's no doubt. Huh. So that's, awesome. that's why I say, what are the odds of, you know, Abraham Lincoln 
camp comes to Gettysburg. It's one of the most consequential battles in American history. Mm-hmm. He gives the Gettysburg Address, which is one of the most consequential speeches in American history. And he gave that speech. You could, you could probably, if you had a good arm with a baseball, you could throw it from the Dobbin house and come close to where he gave that speech, you know? Yeah. And it was right there. And the Dobbin house was there at the time of Lincoln's speech. So I say, is it possible that history imprinted itself and knew that such a, such a massive, important altering event was going to happen right there and foreshadowed it? I don't know. But it's a great way to end a tour, I'll tell you that. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> awesome. Well, that was that was fantastic. You are an absolute just overflowing mine of knowledge about Gettysburg and it's, yeah, it's, it's you're one of the most interesting people I've talked to, definitely. <laughs> Jeez. Well, thank you. Even though, you know, all my it, it's kind of useless knowledge because <laughs> these days, you know, People want to tear down monuments. They right. don't want to appreciate them. Anymore. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. Do you have any, you want to give a shout out to like the, your ghost walk business or your Instagram page, any, anything like that you want to mention? Well, yeah. If you ever go to Gettysburg and it, the, the tour company I work with is Haunted Gettysburg Tours. It's Bob and Bonnie Wassel. They, uh, Bob Wassel wrote the Haunted Gettysburg book series. Um, he, it was oh, him nice. that, it was his show that I did in 1997 when it was just me patio day at the Farnsworth house and Mark Nesbitt with his ghost walks. That was it in 1997 in Gettysburg. You know, there was three places to do ghosts. Now, I mean, like everybody, you got a tattoo parlor, but they do ghost walks. Right, right. You know, everybody does ghost walks now. <laughs> yeah. You know, because it's so much there. Everybody's like, wow, look at all this easy money. But you know, at the same time, I'm, I, when I do a ghost walk, I'm more into doing it for, I like the history part. You know, the ghosts yeah, are great, yeah. but I want, I want to give people a good history lesson of stuff that you don't read in the history books, not your basic stuff. So yeah, I would mm-hmm. definitely say if you're going to Gettysburg to do a tour, Haunted Gettysburg tour, it's, uh, it's Steinware Avenue. I think it's a 123 Steinware Avenue. It's got the Rick Savage plaque on the wall of the building. Awesome. <laughs> so you can't, it's my monument yep, on the Gettysburg. Yep battlefield the rick savage monument they're on steinware you know you're at the right place awesome yeah so go follow rick savage on instagram at official rick savage spelt r-i-c savage and then as always if you guys enjoyed the show follow me on instagram at paranormal paralysis if you have any spooky stories of your own you can email those to paraparalysis at oleg.com and I am working on a website right now, which will be finished by the time this episode airs, which will be paranormalparalysis.com. Um, and on there, you'll be able to you know, listen to the episodes, go to whatever streaming service you use and download the episodes as well as get some merch in the future. So yeah, it's going to be great. You know, usually Rick, at this time, we send our listeners off with a good old stay spooky baby, but I think you know what I'm going to ask. And that is, could you give us your trademark saying to send us on our way here? That's right, baby. If you're standing near the speaker, step back because it's ready to get crazy. (laughs) Boom, baby! (laughs) Awesome. All right. Well, thanks again, Rick. Really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Uh, Thank you to everyone who's listening, and we will see you next time. Thank you, brother.